Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. If you would like to help Room 9, please visit their support page. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9, if you better yourself, you better the world. Fellow Room Niners, welcome to another spectacular episode of Room Nine. This episode was very awesome. This was the first time I have met and sat down and talked with this gentleman. He is the CEO of Evergreen Health, Raymond Gano, and I had an awesome conversation with him. He's an awesome dude. Probably could have kept talking to him for hours, but for your sake, I kept it at the average time and length of a Room Nine podcast episode. But we really kind of hit on uh, harm reduction, and this is something that is kind of, um, you know, back and forth as far as safe injection sites, decriminalization, all that jazz. And we had an awesome conversation about it. Raymond has been around in the harm reduction world for quite some time. So it's really awesome to hear what he had to say. It really opened my eyes to a lot of things, so I hope you enjoy it. Before we get to it, check out room9podcast.com. I need you to fill out a contact form, people. Okay, thanks. I appreciate that, and that way you can stay up to date, and I can get an idea of uh, who's who, and I can talk and meet and greet and all that other jazz that comes along with hosting and running a podcast. Also, October 10th, which is in a couple days, this coming up Thursday, be sure to look for a bonus episode of Room 9 for World Month of Health Day. It is a collaboration episode with Spectrum Health, and I sat down with Brittany Derry in that episode, and she is the program manager at the Seneca Street location, and I had an awesome conversation with her. Also, be sure to go to podcastbusinessjournal.com and look for the interview that I was featured in. Last week's edition of Podcast Business Journal I was in, and it was awesome to be a part of that. And the last thing, if you are looking to help Room 9 expand and further our message to people who are looking for it, you can go to our support page at room9podcast.com and help us out with a one-time donation. You can go to Patreon, sign up, follow Room 9, and commit to a monthly donation, and that would be spectacular. If you are unable to do that and would just like to help out, you can check out our social links and share, like, comment, spread the word. All of that is equally important and helps in a very equal manner. All right, guys, enjoy this. As always, this is not possible without you listening to this, and I love you so much. And I really mean that when I say that. I do love you, and I'm very appreciative of your support. So Room 9 episode with the CEO of Evergreen Health, Raymond Gano. Enjoy. All right, well, we can get this going, Raymond. Okay. Thank you for uh, having me in your beautiful building, your office. Thank you for coming. I appreciate that. And yeah, I wanted to kind of just touch base with you and get to know Evergreen. I haven't done any really work with you guys and any connection. So I'm pumped up that you answered my email. Yeah, of course. And or LinkedIn, whatever it is. I can't remember how I got a hold of you. I think it goes through LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah. And so, no, I appreciate that. But yeah, I don't know, you know, kind of, I guess we can start with how you got started here, you know, what you're passionate about. Yeah. So I graduated undergrad in social work and always wanted to be a detox rehab counselor. That was my goal. I grew up in a family that was, you know, my father was an alcoholic and we had all those kind of challenges that come from families that are impacted from using. And I always dreamed one day of being a detox rehab counselor. So did my undergrad at social work and did a placement over at Bryland Hospitals years ago. And they ended up offering me a position when I was graduating and I loved it. I couldn't get my hands on enough patients. I just loved what I was doing. And at the time, that's when folks were dying of HIV AIDS back Mm -hmm. then. There was no cure. There was not really good treatment. And uh, we started getting a lot of patients coming in with HIV or dying of AIDS. And a lot of the counselors didn't really understand how it was transmitted. They were nervous about it. I did understand it. I had, had some friends that actually died and understood the disease pretty well. So I became the HIV specialist of over at Bryland. Um, over at Bryland, okay. right. And so then I you know, also fell in love with that category of healthcare of HIV and AIDS. And eventually like the, I got a position at Buffalo General Hospital overseeing their HIV programming. And a part of that was starting up a syringe exchange program 
for Western New York. So for me, it was kind of like my dreams, you know, of everything kind of coming together, I was able to kind of do the substance use stuff and the HIV care all in one and was overseeing a lot of those grants and was able to grow some of those and partnered very closely with an organization at the time that was known as AIDS Community Services, Western New York. Okay. That's what Evergreen was known as. Originally. Originally. Okay. Right. So Evergreen grew out of the world of HIV and AIDS and his goal was to put itself out of business, you know, to find a cure for AIDS and so I was working really closely with them. Um, 1996 comes along where there's you know these better treatments for HIV, and we thought, okay, maybe AIDS Community Services was was on its way to ending itself. But what we realized is a lot of other folks really were trying to get their health care here that were not HIV infected, and so we started asking our patients what was going on, and what we found was that people were coming to us because they didn't want to be judged. Um, they didn't like the stigma that was out there. Um, those were people that were active drug users as well. Also people from communities of color and then people from the LGBTQ community, um, whether they were positive or not, were mm -hmm. seeking their care. So we kind of thought maybe we we're onto something. And at that time, uh, I was able to negotiate to bring all my grants over to AIDS Community Services. And we realized that you know this was a model of care that a lot of people really kind of liked, You know that one-stop shop of care. Um, non-judgmental and we changed our name to evergreen health and kind of expanded our services so that's what kind of got me into that's, the field yeah, that's a great story, yeah. and i think i've had every position here from you know bologna sandwich maker in the syringe exchange program <laughs> to now president and ceo so i understand the organization very dearly oh that's what i mean that's what it takes that's what makes a good leader somebody who's been through it all knows how to do every position and yep. can get people to do their positions well Right. That's great. I was just having coffee with a buddy this morning and, you know, I told him I was, I'm going to do um, a podcast, the CEO of Evergreen Health. And we got into a discussion about, you know, the harm reduction yeah, and everything like that, which is there's so many ignorant points of views on harm reduction that oh, are out yeah. there. But that's the one thing we were talking about was how awesome it is just to go somewhere, know that you're not going to get forced to go to rehab and do this and you're going to get help and you're going to get accepted. Yeah. And, you know, we got into the point of, well, that's what's going to help people want to change more when right. they're somewhere where they're accepted no matter what. And after they keep coming back and coming back and all of a sudden, you know what, maybe I do want to go get some help. Yeah. Because we all know how it works when you try to force somebody to go to rehab and change. Right. It never works. That old saying, you it's, can it's rare. lead the horse to the water, but you can't yeah. make him drink. Right? Which, I mean, it's interesting because in my story... I mean, I was arrested and forced to go to rehab, and, and that's what I essentially needed in the end to really just kind of be forced to sit with myself and be like, all right, dude, get your shit together. Yeah. But, I mean, for the most part, you don't hear anybody who is forced to go to the rehabs and that it really struggles to want to do that, unless they have some kind of experience why they're there. That's right. like, you know what, I think I do need to work on stuff. So that's one reason why I was excited to sit down with you is because of that whole you know, harm reduction piece. Yeah. yeah, there's so many stupid points of views out there about, especially the safe injection site conflict that keeps coming up, and people are just clueless to it. Yeah, and they really need that, you know, love and acceptance of non-judgment. And all right, I can go here, be safe, be accepted, be loved, and then if I'm ready, I can. I know I can say bring something up. Right. Which almost always happens once you establish that trust in those relationships. Mm -hmm. It's been really fascinating to see people kind of move through that harm reduction continuum. You know, they, they may come in. We have the region's only um, syringe, licensed syringe exchange program. So we have several thousand active drug users that use that program. Uh, the original intent of that program was to get the used syringes off the streets, and it was disease prevention for HIV and AIDS, right? And to have people use clean work so they weren't transmitted HIV, hepatitis C, and all sorts of other things. The fringe benefit of the program ended up being that you established these really trusting, wonderful relationships, relationships with yeah. these people. And in many cases, they had burned through their trust and, and their personal lives or their families. And you become their family in a way. And as those relationships form, you can see them to start to care about themselves more and to want to use less and to figure out ways of doing that. Um, and that's when we're able to kind of do those stages of change or kind of push people through harm reduction, you know. So we always say that abstinence uh, is a part of a harm reduction approach. It's just most people aren't ready for that yet. No, and that seems like a huge step. When you are spending hundreds of dollars a day on heroin right? and then somebody mentions, oh, you need to stop everything, I mean, yeah. hell no. Right. <laughs> like, no way. That sounds terrible. Why yes. would I do that? Right. W without giving them 
something to replace it with. Yeah. Right? I think a lot of us have realized that drugs, alcohol, sex, food, all that stuff are coping mechanisms for people that are dealing with physical and or emotional pain. It's their way in which they deal with things. So if, if you just come in and say, okay, we're going to take that away from you, but we're not going to give you something else to figure out how to deal with that. <laughs> it's, it's not going to be successful, right? And, I mean, that's been shown since the whole war on drugs began. Right, right. Like, all right, we're going to stop the drugs from coming on the streets, and that'll work. Yeah. And that obviously has not worked. Right. <laughs> what I've been pleasantly surprised about is, I think I always assumed years ago that it would be abstinence versus harm reduction. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned through our abstinence-based partners is there's really a wonderful connection between those programs and, uh, you know, programs like Horizon and, and, um, and speaking with Ann Constantino, our partners, and she's the CEO over there. They do a lot of harm reduction, you know, and they understand where what our organization offers and we refer people back and forth to one another. And I think everybody gets that it's not going to be one person or one organization that solves this, you know, that it's going to be all of us working together and putting our patients first. And, and trying to figure out how do we address their needs. Um, so that's been a wonderful surprise is like how open all these other organizations mm -hmm. and people and leaders are to kind of um, coming together around this issue. Yeah, I just brought that up to somebody because I'm working pretty closely with Save the Michaels, yes. Horizons, and then Spectrum Health. Yep. Uh, those three companies. They're all right amazing yeah. organizations. But I always kind of joke you know, that they really do work together yep. well, everybody that I've met. But I always joke, too, there is obviously some little bit of competition in there. And I know behind, like, in the board meetings and everything, they're shouting out numbers and, you know, talking about what they have to change. But I brought up to somebody, that's a great thing. I mean, sure, that's what drives people to be innovative and yeah. to keep growing and become creative. Yeah, otherwise we don't evolve, yeah. right? Yeah, no, you're just stuck. Yeah, and that's why I just loved uh, kind of, I love getting it, dipping my toes in every different company and... You yeah, know, you're lucky you get to see people. all of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really do, and it's. But I've come across nothing but genuine, authentic, amazing people. Yeah. No, ma no matter where I've been, it's. I mean, I've met with the CEOs of Spectrum. You know, Anne has been one of my biggest supporters since day one. Mm -hmm. I think my first uh, sit down with her was episode like 14, and right now I'm going on 50. And so she's been there all, uh, you know, the whole way. Save the Michaels was the place that brought me to my short term and brought me to my long term. They picked yeah. me up, drove me all the way out by New York City. Yeah. And so I've had a taste and right now I kinda work on call for them driving people, kind of what they did for me, driving people to rehabs and stuff. Yeah. And they're just all awesome. Yeah. They really great. are. And it is I think it's necessary. I mean you do have to work together because each company has different services. Yeah. Avi's actually been here, Avi Israel from Save the Michaels. Yeah. And I think I think he, he gets it too, like where our, what our place is, what Evergreen's place is and mm -hmm. all of this. And that sometimes it's just about, especially when you talk to families and what he's been through, and you just want to keep that person alive, right? Like, you know, with everything that's happened with opioid epidemic and overdoses and get the judgment out of there and just keep that person alive because mm -hmm. um, you don't know what the next couple of days or weeks or months is going to bring. And that's kind of what our role is, I feel like, a lot of times is uh, just getting in there and, and making sure they're going to be okay and get through the day. Obviously, overdose is a huge part of what we yeah. deal with here as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, I think that's, and like we kind of touched base when we first started here, that is like that first step where you're going to get somebody who you can lead them to change. Yeah. You can just let them be, let them take their own route, and they're just here and they're accepted. Right. That's what I've tried to explain to people who are against you know, so against the safe injection sites is mm -hmm. not only there's no proof that crime goes up. That's somebody's biggest argument all the time, which drives me nuts. Yep. There's no proof of that. <laughs> in fact, actually, you've seen crime, it goes down a little bit in some areas. Yeah. And there's somebody there who's every day, you have more of a chance to talk with them and connect with them. And when somebody feels that connection, I mean, that's huge. And I feel like that is the, one of the number one reasons why people even use drugs and numb to begin with. Right. It's because of a lack of a connection with the world, with the universe and with other people. Right. Sure. I mean, it's it, perfect sense. Yeah. So I find that and that's what people arguments are, you know, against the safe injection sites are crime. You know, you're just encouraging them to use drugs. And, I mean, the list goes on of things yeah. that are, you know, said about it to keep it away. What are you guys kind of trying to do at Evergreen to kind of push for more of this to come allowed? I mean, it's a it's a tough one because sometimes what you believe is helpful doesn't 
necessarily match what's legal or mm-hmm. what you know politically is okay uh, so we're in a we're in a tough spot because obviously we believe that safer injection sites would save lives and that's part of our mission is keeping people alive so that mm-hmm. they, they can become more healthy but you know you and i were talking about this a little bit earlier addiction medicine is just so primitive and it just has such a lack of understanding and social stigma around it so we're in a position where we feel like we kind of have to educate a lot of folks and push for change. Our hope is that someday we can get all the judgment out of drug use. If you could mm-hmm. decriminalize it and destigmatize it and just look at it just like any other disease, you know, you would you, know, you wouldn't kick a diabetic off a of treatment because they ate a donut, right? Yeah. Like it's <laughs> it's the same to, to us. It's kind of the same mentality. It really is. It really is. Yeah. There's just such stigma around it. So we're trying to figure out how do we address that, and we're starting in our own shop. You know, making sure that our folks, our our staff, are not judging our patients, and that we accept everybody that walks through our doors and. And then obviously doing as much training and speaking as we can on things like harm reduction, safer ejection sites. But some of our own licenses that we have would not allow for stuff like that to be in yeah. our building. We also have to wait for regulations to change and um, for Oasis to evolve and for OMH, um, Office of Mental Health, to kind of evolve a little bit too. So we're we're hopeful to be a part of that change for the future. Mm-hmm. And in the interim, uh, we're just trying to focus on ourselves and making sure that our patients feel accepted and welcomed. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I find that, I mean, a lot of times people who, I don't know how to say it without sounding too much like a, a douche. <laughs> I mean, people can you just, say that on here? Yeah, oh, you okay. can say whatever you oh, want. that's yeah. great. There's, okay. a, there's parental <laughs> advisories on every episode. So, oh, great, great. Yeah, feel free. <laughs> but um, no, I find that um, people just, they read one article. Yeah, and they're they're experts. They're they know, and it's uh, what is it? The Dunning Kruger effect of yep. psychology. Like the yeah. less you know, the more you think you know. Right. And they do. They just you see it in politics. You see it all over the place. Where right. there's people who read sometimes not even the full article. They read one article and think, oh yeah, this is it. They but, got it now. Yeah, I know everything <laughs> about it. And I just tell people like if you just did some open-minded research and I mean you hit the things that I'm huge in promoting for is decriminalization. Right. And you look at all these countries over in Europe and everywhere else that have decriminalized drugs. Yeah. And just, I mean, there's, the benefits are out of this world. Right. I mean, you see the the crime rates go down, deaths go down, murders go down. I mean, everything is just, you know, addiction is going down. Mm -hmm. And when somebody feels that they're not going to get put in prison, they're not going to get punished, all of a sudden you start feeling like, oh, maybe you can make your own decision about change. Yeah. And when have we in the history of human beings wanted to do anything that we were forced to do? Right. Even if Does it I work was, like that? Yeah. Even if I was going to do something and then you say, hey, Sean, can you do this? I want to do it less now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of how it works. So that's just a simple example of what decriminalization can do. Yeah. And what these safe injection sites can bring. And I just, it, it does. It drives me nuts, the people who are just, all right, I read this headline and now I know everything about it. Yeah. And then argue about it like they know everything about it. And I see you find that in people, you know, somebody probably knows a lot about something when they're very relaxed and not forceful with their opinions. Right. Exactly. So you're kind of pushing for the, you know, looking your way to move forward anyway with the safe injection, the harm reduction. What other like harm reduction pieces do you guys have at Evergreen? Um, I mean, so, we, you know, we currently internally use the model Prochaski de Clemente of um, mm-hmm stages of change for harm reduction. But for us, it's not just about drug use, right? So we're also in the business of sexual health. Uh, so, you know, harm reduction in terms of sexual health is a is a huge thing for us. I mean, I think what we're finding is the principles of harm reduction, we could all benefit from that, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody that's tried to lose some weight, you know, harm reduction can be using low-fat mayonnaise instead of full-fat mayonnaise, right? We, we all have something in our lives, I think, that we could apply the principles of harm reduction. Um, so for us, it's just kind of connecting those dots and expanding it into almost every into how we practice medicine here at Evergreen. The issue, once again, though, is the um, the, the stereotypes and the, mm-hmm. and the judgment that's out there. Like people get it when you talk about any They even get it when you talk about sex more than they get it when you talk about drugs. drugs. Right. Like I always equate a condom to a clean syringe right and <laughs> that we, is great we we get the the argument but you're gonna make people want to use if they if you give them a clean 
syringe and so I'll, I'll hand them a syringe and say do you want to go use now you know this is <laughs> does that make you want to go use heroin if i hand you a syringe just like you know handing someone a condom doesn't make them want to go out and have sex right mm-hmm. um, giving people tools to be safer just makes sense you know so i think that in terms of how we're looking at harm reduction here at evergreen that's oversimplifying it obviously right yeah but yeah it's not simple right and i think that's part of our most recent evolution is there's no cookie cutter approach to recovery like there's not one um special recipe that's going to make everybody better right but it's almost always a multi-prong approach there's there's, Mm -hmm. you know and so we at evergreen are kind of looking at it like a toolbox right how can we have as many tools as possible in our toolbox and then when each individual patient comes in to with them kind of figure out what tools are they going to need in order to improve their lives or, or in order to get down a path of recovery, you know, um, whether it be for addiction medicine or mm-hmm. whatever they're struggling with in their life. And I think that's been the the most interesting kind of light bulb moments for me is like, oh, this is, it's different for everybody. Recovery is different for every person yeah. that walks through our door and we have to individualize recovery and individualize treatment plans. The unfortunate part is that's a that takes a lot more work, right? A lot of work. A lot more time. There's a lot of people out there struggling. Right, right. For everybody, for the for Mm -hmm. the providers and for the patients, because it it takes time, and sometimes that person doesn't know why they're using or doesn't know what's going on, and they need that help and that process to kind of figure it out and pull back those you know layers of the onion to kind of get to the core. That to me was one of the most impactful things is the last couple of months I've been trying to go down and actually just talk to our patients, talk to our active drug users, because as we create and change our model of care, uh, to your point, the, the people we should be talking to are the patients, yeah. right? The people that, and, and so kind of going down there and, and having some groups with some active drug users, and I ask them, you know, what is successful treatment? What does that look like for you? And and how can we do a better job? And the, the biggest thing we heard them say is figure out why I use, right? And and to me, that was like, like, oh, God, it's like it seems so simple, but just drilling down with that one person and figuring out what's going on in their life. <laughs> it, right? it's, it seems like a mountain it's a know, lot. To, to climb. And yeah. I mean, that, that is, I think, the, the number one thing is some people don't even know why they're using. Right. And I looked at it. I had an advantage going in. I always tell people because I was probably one of very few drug addicts who were using heroin and sitting down and watching hour and a half lectures by Robert Sapolsky on behaviorism. That's awesome. And, you know, so I was one of these few people yet, it, which is always funny because I laugh because I was huge into just watching and reading and working on myself while I'm running from something and numbing it and sure. just continuing to do it. But I had this advantage of I've been really working on myself for quite a few years so even just going into jail i knew what i had to do i just haven't done it yet right and so that that's why i had a huge advantage i feel kind of going into it some people they don't they have no idea why they're using right i mean some people it could be a childhood memory that they don't even remember what exactly happened and you have to really you know dig down deeper into that and then i feel like you can come into the problem where bringing up some of these really huge traumatic things could even cause somebody to want to use more sure which is again why I think you see a lot of relapse, right? Yeah, and that's that's been their coping mechanism. So mm-hmm. yeah, you you bring back the pain, and of course it's going to be their instinct to mask it in the way that they have in the past, right? The other struggle is that you know, so what we're talking about is like psychiatrists, and counselors, and the model doesn't allow you know that flexibility, right? Like mm-hmm. the the licenses that you currently have, or the way in which we bill for services as organizations, um, doesn't just allow you to pull all those pieces in together and, and take care of that one person because uh, it's expensive, you know, and it's difficult to pay yes. for. So I think you know we're all trying to figure out how to evolve and how to get to that place that we can address the individual needs of a patient. It's just we're we're in the process of evolving, so it's painful to kind of wait for everybody to catch up it is of speaking of change yeah it is hard <laughs> yeah yeah and i can only imagine what that feels like from a patient yeah. perspective you know when you're sitting there screaming this is what i need and you're watching a barbaric system try to slowly kind of change and evolve yeah it is, i mean even the times when i've heard people i was a uh, when i got a horizon village i was a uh, went into an oxford house and i was the president of the oxford house towards the end of my stay there cool and i just remember people would be calling two weeks in horizon village it's like, well, why are you leaving so early? You know, I'd ask them, and my insurance says I don't right. need it anymore. I'm like, what? Right. It doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. Like, your insurance doesn't even know who you are. Right. They're looking at paper. 
Yes. With your name on it and what you've been through. It, I mean, that just dumbfounded me. All right. To, to see that. And there's so many. I mean, you could talk for days and hours and hours about what needs to be fixed, what yeah. the issues are. And some of them, these issues, are you're just so helpless with that. I mean, you have health insurance companies. Uh, I mean, sick people, it's all about money. Yeah. And it just it's crazy to me, the whole flaws and all the systems. And then you're just this one person trying to work on something and trying to do one little change at a time. And I mean, that's a huge mountain to climb. Right. With what needs to what needs to happen. Yeah. What are you guys kind of working on right now as far as some of your bigger projects and change and your vision for things to come? So some of our next steps is applying for an OMH license, that Office of Mental Health license. We currently have an OASIS license and an Article 28, which is primary care. So, I mean, I think for us, what we're trying to do is kind of, you know, that one-stop shop kind of thing. And, and either ourselves or with our partners kind of pull in a lot of the services that folks need to get healthier, those tools and toolbox that we were talking about. You know, we're trying not to put Band-Aids on bullet holes, right? So mm-hmm. when, when people come in and their life or something is broken, you don't just treat a symptom and put a Band-Aid on it and hope for the best, right? We're trying to really kind of look at that whole person and figure out how to stop that cycle of sickness or how to you know elevate people out of poverty and really change things. What that means is addressing all those social determinants of health mm. for a person, right? Uh, housing being a big one you know sometimes when a person's dealing with substance use issues yeah. stuff happens right and uh, their, their family kicks them out or they've lost their housing or um, you know they're, they're couch surfing or sleeping on someone's couch and many times stabilized housing is one of the first things you have to address for a person safe stabilized I, hate, housing. I hate to bring it up but it's maslow's hierarchy <laughs> right yeah what's important to them right if you don't, if you're not fed and you don't have shelter, you're not gonna give a crap about your psychological needs. Right. Yeah. Exactly. We actually one of our payers years ago was coming in, you know, because they see the data in much different ways than we do. Mm-hmm. Right. We see the person, they see the data, and they're like, "Well, you know, you're not working on aspirin regimens for these types of patients." And and wait a minute, this person doesn't have a place to live. Um, they're misdiagnosed from a mental health perspective. They're an active drug use, and like that's <laughs> not really important to them right now. Right. An yep. aspirin regimen. We might want to talk about the other stuff but the way the system is set up right now is that there's just like the the blindfolds are on where you just they they want you to focus on this quality indicator and it's an aspirin regimen so you gotta check that box yeah meanwhile all i'm eating is a bag of cheetos every two weeks and you want me to take vitamin c (laughs) right right uh so getting those two, two things to match i think is um you know important but back to to your point like where we're at some of the things we're working on is kind of um, we're still building that model of care you know pulling in all those tools uh, working with our partners you know um, with all the folks that you mentioned to spectrum and horizon and uh, because you know maybe we're not the best at everything right And, and and sometimes it is working together as a team and putting that patient first so but making sure that even just connectivity like do we know if that person overdosed you know making sure that the hospital systems are pushing the data to us so that we so know everybody if, is communicating right right because what we know is that some, sometimes the best time to introduce matt is when a person is in an active overdose or in the ed um ecmc's been been great we've connected with uh some of their docs over there and when people present in active overdose or we've narconed them here or their family has or whatever they can do a, a call it a warm handoff and like right over to mm-hmm. matt or because that's when the person you know is having that moment of you know what i think i need some help and i'm in active um you know narcan kind of right now and i'm going on suboxone or something would be it would be a perfect time be, for something yeah. like that so that's when we're able to kind of you know meet the needs of folks too but you need to have that those electronic systems connected mm-hmm. and so a lot of those behind the scenes things i think is what a lot of us are working on right now too yeah i found that was an awesome thing with horizons although i didn't go to terrace house i went to a different 28-day program but even from horizon village to my outpatient was you know the counselors were talking yeah you know they have the whole the system they're all connected to it you know this is what sean's been working on this is what he's accomplished this is what his goals are and that communication is huge yeah, that would be, that's my, my dream yeah. is someday that we're all connected to the point where, you know, I could pr- seamlessly hand off to Horizon or Spectrum mm-hmm. or um, Save the Michaels or, or they could do the same with us. You know, this this is where that, this is where we've been with that person. Take it from there kind of thing. So that, I mean, that's a part of it. We're also um, applying to be a federally qualified health center lookalike. And what does that mean exactly? Uh, that's a primary care focused initiative where you're able to, 
you have to hit certain federal quality indicators and okay. your target is kind of more safety net populations and Medicaid, which ours is. And then you establish a certain um, standard and you get enhanced uh, reimbursement for billing and, and those sorts of things. Uh, so, so for us, that would be helpful at making our primary care more sustainable where we, we do lose a okay. lot of money in primary care. You know, one of the things folks are are learning is, especially as New York State is kind of transferring over from a fee-for-service model to more of a value-based payment model, is being able to really address that person's need. It's not going to happen in a 12-minute primary care <laughs> visit, right? Like you're, you're going to need to spend a lot more time lot with time. that yeah. person. And currently, the reimbursement, you know, depending on the insurance payers, anywhere from, you know, $12 to 60 bucks or whatever for that 12-minute visit. And some of our patients need an hour and a half. And then right after that, that they're going to need a referral for housing and a referral for mental health and a referral for substance use. And um, a lot of that's not reimbursable. So, you know, trying to make sure that we're able to pay the bills and meet the patient's needs is where we're, I think that's where we're at as an organization right now. Well, that's, that's the trick. That's I the mean, trick, you need right. to, you need to eat. <laughs> yeah. You have to, you have to be in business tomorrow in order to yeah. take care of people. Yeah. Right? And that, so. that's kind of one of my, my things I've struggled starting room nine is, yeah charging somebody to go speak and do a presentation right yeah and like well i want to help but then i have to remind myself a your time is worth money right and b i mean you need to you have bills you have to eat dinner every night and you know stuff like that but i do find it that's one of the biggest struggles in this industry at least i have found is you know trying to make that profit make that money yep and yet i mean you want to help people right you know you want to you want to do it to help people that's the main reason why i'm doing what i'm doing is because i want to feel i mean it there's selfishness involved because it makes me feel good i wouldn't mm-hmm. be helping people if it made me feel like shit right but there's still that all right now i, I want to help people that's my main drive and yet you need to make money yeah that's pretty important the balance yes there, right? <laughs> yeah i mean you definitely need that i mean i guess kind of moving on i'm trying to think what else i really wanted to touch base i really was happy to talk harm reduction because i don't think i've really had an episode so much centered around that and that was definitely one important thing because i've seen it up all over a lot on social media but just even a lot of parents that i've been involved with even just with suboxone like the whole world's on it and you know a lot of people just have their this really polluted point of view on what's going on and as we kind of touch base on earlier is how it's just so individualized right it's like you got it, and I think that's almost in everything in life where you have to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that in order to better yourself. Yeah, it and just it, makes sense. Right? It does, and I mean, it's so hard to figure out, you know, to have that one recipe, which I mean, don't think that's possible, obviously, but it's so difficult to even figure out for one person. Yeah. I mean, you can have two people who literally had the exact same experience up until last night. One person ate spaghetti, another person ate pizza, and that could change everything about the person right. <laughs> differently, you know, and it really could and how you're going to, you know, have this person change and how they're going to move forward. Yeah. And I've just kind of noticed so much that I really have a tendency where I've had to take a step back on this podcast because I get annoyed with like groups like AA and NA. And I had to, a few weeks back, I had one of my good buddies who... AA's really helped him. I was like, all right, dude, yeah. I gotta sit, you gotta sit down with me because I gotta do something positive about AA. But I, because I've just found my experience with them and trying to get a sponsor, or I should say, I did get a sponsor for a little bit. But my experience with them is like, you do it this, then this is it, and this is the only way. And that just drove me nuts. Yeah. Kind of running into that. But and if that works for somebody, that's great. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But for you, it didn't. I think, I think that's the whole point is. I think if we're all going to like get through this, um, we just have to open our minds Mm -hmm. and understand that none of us have it all figured out and that maybe we could all learn something else. And I think the people that are going to teach us something else are the patients. Yeah. And, you know, we act like uh, as the professionals that we should know it all. And um, (laughs) I mean, it's just it's just so silly. But it's like, let's just ask the patients, like, what do they need? What do they need? What do they want to get through this? Right. So I think that's, you know, kind of what we're in the midst of, you know, in terms of maybe going back to harm reduction, um, just a little bit more. I mean, witnessing it firsthand since 1992, when we opened up the syringe exchange in Buffalo, and and we were the first uh, hospital-based syringe exchange program in North America, right here in Buffalo, which was amazing. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yes, in the old Columbus Hospital on Niagara Street right over there. Watching the 
tens of thousands of people that have walked through those programs in that last 27 years, watching them change and get better and, and establish relationships. And in so many instances, it was their only lifeline, the only thing. And, and I think that's what really strikes me hardcore is like when people like Avi come in here and talk to us, or it's been a lot for us, our, our evolution was forced by family members in a lot of cases, you know, people coming in here and saying, my kid is going to die. I know he's going to die or she's going to die. What can you do, right? So getting past all the bullshit, all the judgment, all that other mm -hmm. stuff, and just connecting with that family member or that person and saying, like, how do I keep you alive? How do we, how do we, and syringe exchange has been one of it, and harm reduction has been a way of doing that. And again, it's not going to be one thing, but of having a variety of choices and then, you know, being able to pull out with that person, like, what's going to, what's going to save them or what's going to help them. You know, yeah. Um, what can we do for you? Right. And how do you want it? What do you say, because I've found going back to this like very fine line of harm reduction and then the the word, I, I'm going to say it, enabling word, mm -hmm. where I've, I've run into some parents who just let their kids do anything because, all right, at least here I got Narcan and I can, right. you know, I can save their life. I mean, where do you find the point is where you, now you're you're not even coming close to helping anymore? Do you do you find that a parent maybe that is they are better off just letting their kid kind of use in their house and do what they need to do because they can save their life or is it kind of you know some parents you know i've had parents i've had conversation with they've kicked their kid out and he, they've overdosed and died yep I, and i think the answer for that is also going to be very individualized mm -hmm. right i don't think um you or i are going to have a, an appropriate answer and that's been the struggles people want advice or what should i do and who has the answers for that right yeah. like i mean i think everybody needs to take the the individual circumstance you know um and, and take a look at it and i mean the folks that i know and, and it's been both personally and professionally that i've been affected by this have tried a lot of stuff right and mm -hmm. then there's always that guilt like that i didn't do enough you know especially when the you know their child has died of an overdose and what i do know is stigma shaming and judging never, never helps, helps right um so taking away the stuff that we know just doesn't help getting rid of it trying to you know uh, get rid of those kind of the, the cookie cutter approach to um, substance use treatment taking all that kind of stuff away and then trying to figure out increases the odds i think i don't think there's ever like just one solid no. solution for it right no i mean enabling that's 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 one of those words right it's it's a trigger word for me because like for some <laughs> people maybe it is enabling and for other people that's what's keeping them alive for another day right and we used to have a saying when i did work in inpatient rehab uh you can't treat a dead addict we used to call them addicts back then it's true right mm -hmm. if, if they're not here tomorrow we can't we can't introduce them to some other treatment or form of you know help, right? Yeah. So our, our big thing is just kind of like trying to make sure that we're meeting that immediate need for the patient. I, I mean, I gave the exact same answer to that group of parents I was talking to, that there's, there is no, there's no one answer for that. Right. And it is so individualized. And that's not that answer anybody ever wants. <laughs> yeah. But it's the only honest answer you can give. Yeah. And I mean, there's, I mean, like I shared with you, so much of my life since my mid-20s has been introspection and working on myself. And I knew so many things intellectually in my life, but I just I wanted that one book. That, all right, but how do I apply that? I wish, and yeah. There's no such thing. That comes from moving forward, attempting and trying and failing at things. Yeah. And unfortunately, in this, in this industry, there's sometimes failing means death, but... I, did, I wrote a blog on death called Memento More, and one of my favorite philosophers always used the Latin to be mindful of death, it means. And I wrote it like until I think we become not necessarily okay with it, but just we know until yeah. we admit it, till we can talk about it, because it's, it's such a taboo topic, dying, even in the substance use world. Right. We still don't want to talk about it. We still don't want to face it or think about it actually being a possibility. Yeah. And I think really until we come to a point where we can respect that, you know what, this is a possibility. Yeah. And we can become, it's never going to be easy. It's never going to be okay. And I realize that's very difficult here because I haven't, I don't have a child that's a drug addict, but I mean, even my parents have lost two kids and I've seen how difficult that is. So I don't say it that lightly, right? but I think we need to really come to a point where we are at least respecting and knowing and acknowledging that death is a possibility. Right. Cause I think that clouds a lot of judgment. You're right. I think that fear of my child dying is 
causing people to not be able to see and do exactly what they need to do. No, that's very true. Yeah. yeah. But I find that, I mean, how many, I guess, out of all your patients and that, do you guys, is it kind of a, a frequent thing you hear about overdosing? Is it? Yeah. I mean, you know, when fentanyl was uh, doing its recently, thing there a couple yeah. of years ago, the majority of the people that were dying were our patients because really, you know, yeah. they, they were active drug users and that's what we do here. And so a lot of them were in our syringe exchange program. So, I mean, you know, the messed up part about drug addiction is trying to message those things to the active drug user too, right? Mm-hmm. We had to be really careful about how, you know, like stay away from the baggie with the frowny face on it. Cause you know, that's, that's laced with higher doses of fentanyl. And then we'd find out that some of our folks that were really struggling would go after that bag mm. because they wanted the fentanyl cause it was a better high for that or whatever. Right. That's interesting. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Like it's, it's tough, man. Like trying to figure out how do you message that and how do you get people that sometimes they're in such a low of their life that they're really you know, they're not in a place where they're caring about themselves sometimes, right? Yeah. How, how do you talk to them about like being healthier when they're not there yet, but you want them to stay alive? Like it's, it's a, it's a tough one. And I, again, I don't think there's any, you know, my, my brother-in-law died of an overdose. Um, and I run an organization that treats people, right? My best friend's kid died of an overdose and, you know, they were like screaming, help us, help us. And if we had the answer, you know, that would be amazing. But it would be, yeah. Nobody does, right? We're all just trying to figure it out. No, and I wonder, you know, I sometimes wonder, will there ever be an answer? Uh, I mean, I hope so. Again, I think we're primitive, and I hope uh, mm-hmm. I hope someday, you know, history looks back and says, wow, those dummies had no idea what they were doing, <laughs> and, and it's something more simple that we can even, even fathom right now. But for right now, we know it's incredibly complicated for us to figure out. It is, and I, I find, I mean, I think since the dawn of, you know, humanity, and being able to just, you know, step outside of ourselves and observe ourselves, there's been this form of escapism and use sure. of drugs. I mean, from the very beginning. Right. I always kind of imagine like the first human being to come across like a sugar cane field. Yeah. <laughs> Sugar's <laughs> and, the best drug. And how, yeah, and how like <laughs> dumbfounded they were when oh, yeah. they first ingested it. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to me because you, you see escapism all the time throughout the history of mankind. And somebody said something to me the one time about like, what other living thing does this kind of, does Mm. this, you know, this, I know, you know, I know smoking cigarettes is bad for me, but I do it. Right. You know, what kind of other living thing? And I I said, if you can show me one other living thing that can think about the past, uh, prepare for the future, future and step outside and observe themselves, then I'll let you know what other living thing does this because no other living thing can do this. Right. And when you have, the ability to say, oh, I know I'm going to die one day <laughs> and think about pain and think about, you know, just suffering all the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, self-medicating is there. Sure. And it's, it's always has been. And I just wonder, you know, when I think about it sometimes in my, when I get off in my, you know, staring off at the ceiling, thinking about things, I wonder, like, I wonder if it ever will, which doesn't mean, you know, we shouldn't be working and trying to save lives and change things. But, yeah. I mean, I even find myself a lot of times, with my energy drinks, like strategically, yep. all right, I'm going to drink one when I'm on the way to go do this podcast. So, you know, I get that energy boost right before. And I'm yeah. like, it's just funny how I, I you, it never goes away. Right. It's just always, there is always something that I'm, I'm planning and doing. And mine is sugar and carbs. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we all have our thing that helps us escape, right? <laughs> um, it's there. And I guess like you said, to bring it back to harm reduction. Like, yeah. How do I, all right. I can't drink five of these every day because something, you know, I'm going to get sick or, right. you know, that's just not a healthy thing. I can't eat a loaf of bread every meal because yeah. that's, that's terrible for you. So how do I cut back on these things? And, yeah. Again, you're back to the judgment component of it, yeah. right? So like when um, a diabetic is successful at establishing that balance of diet and the proper medication and all those sorts of things, mm-hmm. we applaud them, right? When a person struggling with substance use does it and they, they get on mat and they figured out whatever groups or therapy that is, is necessary for them to kind of be in the place in life where they want to be at, right? Our immediate thing is, well, why are they still taking Suboxone? Or why can't <laughs> why can't they do this and this and this? Or why? Are, because like it's instilled in us this sense it of is. judgment around it, it you know? And I don't know if it comes with the illegal actions that have come from drug use self-fulfilling prophecy that we've created through the rockefeller laws and all that yeah yeah and it kind of goes back to that (laughs) and then and then you know you implement your racial bias on top of that and everything um i mean it's 
it's a part of our society in a way that is, most yeah. other um, healthcare issues are not. I think that's what makes it so different and sensitive. I don't know if you ever heard of her, Dr. Sally Sattel. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually just lined up a podcast to do with her. Oh, very cool. Yeah, that's November awesome. 8th, so I'm pretty excited about that. I was listening to um, a lecture she was giving about, and she talks about the Vietnam War, how Nixon came up with the Operation yep. Golden Flow, where you know people had to give a clean urine because they yep. became so addicted to uh, heroin and opium over in Vietnam. Right. And she just brought up how... She always says, if a sheriff asked me if addiction was a brain disease, I would say absolutely is, 100%. But she also talks about when a nurse asked that or somebody else asked that, and she says, well, it depends on what you mean then. And she kind of goes into that, like some people have had choices hmm. and they have chosen just to stop. Right. And it does happen. And that's, I think, another aspect of what makes addiction so different than any other disease right. is because there are aspects where I can make choices mm -hmm. that are going to help me either stop using, help me quit completely, help me cut back. And it's just so weird how it can go from it's neurological, biological, psychological, physiological. It just it's all over and all those different aspects that need to be worked on. Then you take all of those and for each individual, right. they're all different. Yeah. And then you add up on the, you know millions of people who are you know going through addiction and mental yeah. health it's like it it's a little complicated be, yeah <laughs> just a little bit it can be super overwhelming right right and it's just i mean i love challenges like that and i think that's then probably, you're doing the right thing Sean. yeah yeah i really i i am and i always talked about this medium a podcast being a medium for hopefully what i would like because i like going all over the board i've had yeah certified yoga teacher on here i've had you know ceos i've had people who are still in active addiction i've had people who i just got out i've one th person i want to try to get on here which i'm debating if it's a good move yet is an actual like drug dealer who is struggling and you know using a different name and all of that but yeah. i really thought like you know why not why not to get a point of view out because when it comes down to it no matter what anybody's doing and i would never say drug dealers are good people by all means when it comes down to it, you have no idea why somebody's doing something and yeah. you know what they're facing in life and i want to get all those different points of views and kind of get them out there yeah well Make i mean i think what you're doing is so amazing because we have to talk about this stuff yeah. right and from every viewpoint in order to kind of try to do a better job and figure it out more so i think what you're doing is critical um yeah, thank and you. i was very excited to be a part of your project it's great yeah, I think it's it's huge, and I love I love talking about taboo subjects like safe injection sites, yeah. decriminalization. One of my favorites is um, you know psychotherapy and hallucinogenics and mm -hmm. stuff like ayahuasca and ayaboga and dimethyltryptamine and all these yep. things that have this these great what little research that we've done have these great results on mm -hmm. helping people open up and experience things. And yeah, I mean I've always the few times that I have done. I didn't do really any hallucinogenics throughout my heroin addiction when it got bad because I knew what that would bring on. But the times I've taken, you know, mushrooms with a close buddy of mine and I mean, I've been awakened to, wow, I don't listen. I need to start listening better. I need to work on these things. Yeah. Crying was another one. I realized, wow, I need to learn how to cry again. I yep. need to teach myself to do that because this is so important. It's a tool. Yeah. And so that's one of my, you know, favorite subject. I had uh, a guy on here who didn't, um, 5-MeO dimethyltryptamine once and stopped taking Adderall. Hmm. Like he's, he was on Adderall from the age of 12 to 29. I was reading some studies about the, how it can reboot the, yeah. the brain. And... and he said, I just, he said, I stopped drinking after the first time I took LSD. And he said after he did 5-MeO dimethyltryptamine, he stopped. Yeah. He stopped uh, taking his Adderall and yeah. he was able to get off of it and he had a plan and he did it. And so those are the things I love getting out there as well as everything else that right. comes along with it because you never know somebody can be doing laundry and hear, you know, one topic that you just brought up and be like, oh, I'm going to look into that and that can spark change. Yep. And that's why I'm really excited to uh, keep doing this and have people on like you. I always end it with this um, saying of, if you have like one big piece of advice to give to somebody who's struggling, whether it's a parent, whether it's somebody in addiction, what would that be? That kind of started off as a joke. I always explain it on here, so I need to stop explaining it. But yeah, you know, I just kind of was like stumbling for something to ask that one of my first few episodes and this person gave an awesome answer. So I kind of started ending every episode with that. 
I think don't give up and try everything, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and that's part of what we were talking about. You're, what you're trying to figure out is what is that individualized solution for that person and their circumstances. And, you know, you might, you might get like 37, this isn't working. And, and then that 38th is a, is the something that's, that's going to help. Right. So just keep on trying and don't give up. I wish it were easier than that, but it's just, it's just not right now. Yeah, no, it, it isn't. And I love this saying, it's like a Zen saying that a Zen master has failed more times than you have even tried. Right. And I think really it's important to, failing's good. Yes. Like you got to learn something from it and you have to be accepting of it. And if you pay attention while you fail, that's going to help you grow. Yeah. And no matter how many times, especially in this world. Yeah. Somebody told me once um, in running a company, failing is a part of the road to success, right? You you almost inevitably will fail if you're trying to do something. So maybe, yeah, I guess that's the advice is don't don't see that failure as the end, but just a part of the process. Learn from it. Right. Awesome. All right, Raymond. Thank you for uh, joining me. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Continue this relationship. Sounds great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Was I right? Wasn't that a great episode? (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys. Just a quick reminder, uh, this Thursday, October 10th, look for the bonus episode for World Mental Health Day with Brittany Derry. You'll be able to listen to that at room9podcast.com or your favorite podcast listening platform. Other than that, I will see you guys, or I should say talk to you guys next week. Hang in there. Stay strong. Learn from your mistakes. Keep getting back up. Don't ever stop trying. All right. Peace out.